wonderful to be with you. We are one church in many locations, and so that's why I get to say hello to you from the West Campus this morning. It's great to be here at the West Campus, so let me say, therefore, hello to all of you at the Fort Worth Campus, uh, Converge, Hive, uh, South Campus, Granbury, all of those who call Christ Chapel home and all of you uh, joining us online. It is great uh, to be together. So, so thankful that we get to study the word uh, in this way, in this form. But can you believe that it's March? Can you believe that March Madness is about to begin? I cannot believe it, but uh, I love it and I'm excited. But because it's March, it means that you've probably seen those New Year's advertisements wane. You know, those, those things, those products that always get advertised uh, during the new year that usually have to do with something like health and well-being. So around the new year, you always see, you know, exercise equipment being advertised or gym memberships or, or meal planning prep uh, services. All of those new year well-being things uh, all get advertised during the beginning of the year. And they basically all advertise their products in the same way. They, they all use this idea of testimonials. You know, you know what this is like, where, where somebody gets on and they tell you how dreadful their life was before. But then they introduced Blue Apron and their life is now changed. And now it's all, you know, it's great. Their, their, their life is so much easier. They're so much healthier. I mean, this was the key that unlocked their better life. And all of these testimonials really have, whether it's explicitly said, uh, they implicitly have the same message. And it's this, if I can do it, so can you. And we buy that all the time. Like there, there are times where we believe those testimonials. It, it looks so easy and so attractive that we go, maybe I need that ladder. You know, I I never knew that I did, but I never used the ladder, but they're telling me it'll change my life. I'll use that ladder. And it works on us. Statistics, whether you believe them or not, say that 70% of those testimonials work. Now, I don't exactly know what that means, but we buy into that. You think if I get that, then my life will be better. That's why many of you, 70% of you statistics say, have a shake weight at home, Right? <laughs> I won't ask you to raise your hand. You'd be willing to confess to far worse than admitting that you have a shake weight at home. But we want to believe in those things that if they can do it, then so can I. But here's my question. Why does that not work in Christianity? Why do we look at other people in the faith and we don't believe that if they can do it, so can I? Why, why is that? We, we look at heroes of the faith or, or mentors or, or spiritual leaders and, and, and we don't think, wow, God can do in me what they did in them. And I think part of it is because of that message that is, is always bombarding us in our culture because in our culture, we think it's all about what I can do, that the power resides with me. And so when we see somebody living out a Christ-like life, we think it's within their own power. And we go, I could never do that. 
And see, the, the whole phrase is wrong in Christianity. The, the, the phrase, if I can do it, so can you, does not apply in Christianity because we know, as we just talked about last week, that living the Christian life is not about living in your own power. It's about living in God's power, walking in his spirit. You see, the phrase that applies in Christianity is not, if I can do it, so can you. The phrase is, if he can work in and through me, then he can work in and through you. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So if you will, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 41 is where we're going to be today. If you're opening one of those blue Bibles, no matter the venue you're in, it is page 910, 910. And we're going to jump back into our series on Acts. And not that we have been out of it the past few weeks, but we've definitely kind of taken a rest stop because we've done that three-week series on the Holy Spirit, the the personhood and the personal ministry, two parts on the personal ministry of the Holy Spirit to us as believers. And certainly, if you missed any of that, uh, the men did a fabulous job, uh, Dr. Bailey and Jonathan Murphy. Please go back and and watch those uh, to get caught up. But the reason why we did that mini-series on the Holy Spirit was because of the passage that we jumped off from, which was Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit arrived. The Holy Spirit came in a different way than he ever had before throughout Scripture. And he comes upon these 120 believers who were waiting for the Holy Spirit's arrival. Jesus had told them to wait in Jerusalem. And if you'll remember, the Holy Spirit comes in a way that's visible, in a way that's audible, and in a way that's powerful. And so it comes in this very powerful way And these disciples, these 120 disciples, begin telling of the mighty works of God, but they're not just telling the mighty works of God in their own languages. They're talking about it in other languages that they did not know. Now, they were known languages to the hearers, known languages in the world, but there's this point where when they're telling this, there's a lot of confusion. And you can imagine that. Remember, they they said, who are these Galileans? Like they should have only known one language, one dialect, but now they're speaking in other languages, other dialects. And there's this point of confusion for all of those who are looking on. And Peter has an opportunity to stand up and clarify what is going on. And what he's going to say in the passage that we're going to look at today is what you're witnessing is the power of the Holy Spirit. And this same power can be passed on to you. So we're going to look at what Peter said to that crowd that was looking on, and then we're going to apply it to us because the same power that Peter had that could be passed on to that crowd can be passed on to you today. So that's what we're going to look at today. So if you will, uh, pull out those sermon notes. You definitely need an open Bible. I know I told you uh, what page it was, but it's page 910 in case you're like, I don't know if I really need to open it. There's going to be a lot of scriptures that we look at that are not on the sermon notes and not on the screens. That'll be uh, very helpful for you to look at. But let's begin with the sermon notes to where I want you to see that first, Peter witnessed by attributing God's miraculous works to the Holy Spirit. Now, I know we've hammered this home, but it bears repeating that what 
Peter is doing and what those disciples are doing when they receive the Holy Spirit is witnessing. Remember, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, when he says to wait for this power of the Holy Spirit, that you will receive power. Why? This is interactive again, okay? I'm, I'm here, guys. Let's go. Why? Why would they receive that power? To be his witnesses. Very good to be his witnesses. And guys, that, the reason why that's so important is because that's what we're going to see worked out over the entire book of Acts, is people being witnesses for Christ, telling what they've seen and what they've heard about who Jesus is. And so Peter is witnessing this. He's witnessing to this fact that what you see all has to do with the Holy Spirit because that's what they were called to do when the Holy Spirit came upon them. But remember, as they witness these mighty works of God in these different languages, the point of confusion there is people say, what is going on with these folks? They look like they're drunk. That, that, that's what is being ascribed to these people that are speaking in these other known languages. And so Peter has to step up and clarify what everyone is seeing. Look at verses 14 and 15. It says, but Peter standing with the 11, who are the 11? Those are the other disciples. And they had, had just talked about Matthias earlier, who was replacing Judas, who I'll talk about Judas later on in just a second. But that's the 11. So Peter, standing with the 11, he lifted up his voice and addressed them. Them is this crowd that had gathered because they had heard all these other languages. So he addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Remember, there are a bunch of people there because they are celebrating the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and Pentecost. So they're, they're pilgrims from everywhere. That's why they're speaking in these other languages so that they can communicate the mighty works of God. And all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, which would mean 9 a.m. in the morning. Uh, if they're drunk, that's a problem, and, and they're, they're, they're not, okay? What he's saying is there's something divine going on. And then Peter is going to give the first sermon of the early church. And it looks pretty brief. And you're like, Cody, why can't your sermons be that brief? Okay, well, let me just remind you that later on in the, in the sermon, it says, and he told in many other ways and continued to exhort them. So it's parenthetical. It's probably a long sermon, okay? But... He goes on and tells them what is going on. And he's going to go all the way through the Old Testament. He's going to contextualize what's happening then. And he's going to apply it to them now. But I want to summarize some of the Old Testament for you. So what he was saying to the crowd was that the crowd was witnessing what God had promised to do for those who had faith in him. When Peter stands up to clarify what's going on, he tells the crowd that they were witnessing what God has promised to do for those who had faith in him. And he goes back and he uses the Old Testament prophet, Joel. And if you look at, verses seven, look at verse 17, this is why you need an open Bible because this is not going to come up on the screen. Verse 17, it says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
And then he goes in and he talks about all the different kinds of people, which just means that the ability to receive the Holy Spirit is not discriminate upon a class or gender. He goes, this is for sons, this is for daughters, this is for slaves, this is for free, this is for anyone. And then if you go to verse 21, this is a key verse. In verse 21, it says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what you're witnessing is God's spirit being poured out onto flesh, into people. And we talked about that the past few weeks, that God no longer resided in a place. He now resides in his people. And that's what they are seeing, and that's what they are witnessing. But the question becomes this. If Joel prophesied that the spirit was going to be poured out on all flesh— then why is it only residing in those 120 disciples? Why not the rest of the crowd? Why why not all flesh? And he goes on to give further clarification, and it's this, that the crowd did not receive the Holy Spirit because they had rejected Jesus. The crowd did not receive the Holy Spirit because they had rejected Jesus. The order is imperative here in this, that you don't get the Spirit without the Son. You have to accept the Son in order to receive the Spirit. And they have rejected Jesus, which is why they didn't receive the Spirit. In fact, it says that in verses 22 to 24. Uh, Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it, that being death. So he stands up in front of this crowd and says, you know why you didn't receive the spirit? It's because you didn't receive the son. You rejected the son. And God made it very clear to you that he was the Messiah that had been prophesied He was the Messiah that had come to rule and to reign. He was the Messiah that came to bring you peace. And you said, I don't want him. You rejected him. And essentially what Peter is saying is, God made it very clear who Jesus was. And you said you didn't want him. It wasn't that Jesus was hidden. It wasn't that they go, oh my gosh, I never knew. He said he attested that he was his son, that he was the Messiah through these wonderful and mighty works. What were those things? Those were the healings. Those were the feeding of the 5,000. Those were the walking on the water. All of those wonderful things that we read in the Gospels. And remember, we talked about that uh, these signs and wonders affirm the message, but also the messenger. And the same was true for Jesus throughout the Gospels. So he's saying, God made it really clear This is divine. This is the one. This is the one you were waiting for. And you said, no thanks. And Peter stands up and says, guys, you should have known. You should have known better. 
In fact, he, he, uh, there's a passage, I think it's in John chapter 7, maybe verse 39, where Jesus talks to the, to the Pharisees, and he says, you guys search the scriptures, yet you do not come to me. Like, you, you read about me, but you've never come to me. You, 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 you know that everything is pointing to Jesus, yet you decided no thanks. And Peter tells them, this is on you. This is, this is on you individually. And just don't, don't miss this point, uh, guys. This is incredibly bold of Peter to do. To, to call them to account for their own sin. Because if you will remember, this same crowd that is gathered, that are, are seeing the mighty works of God on display right now, are the same ones that seven to eight weeks before had just crucified Jesus. They had just crucified him. And now Peter goes, yeah, you crucified him. Now, if you're Peter, what do you think might happen to you? I mean, I, I, I would be afraid that they're going to do the same thing to me that they did to him, which is a great lesson for us. And even goes back to what we talked about last week with uh, Galatians chapter 5, um, that when we walk in the flesh, we will often be fearful when it comes to proclaiming Christ. But when we walk by the Spirit, we walk by faith. And, and Peter exhibits this very bold faith to witness about who Jesus is and what he had done. And so that's what he's doing here is telling him, you didn't receive it because you rejected Jesus. But in an incredible turn of events, even though Peter is calling them to account, Peter doesn't condemn the crowd. Instead, he invites them to join the family, which is just crazy to think. You see, as what we see later on in verses 37 and on is that Peter invited everyone to believe in Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit. He invited everyone to believe in Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit. This is crazy. I mean, these are pe- people that had just killed Peter's friend, Peter's savior, Peter's leader. And he, he, you know, he could beat him up for it. And instead he says, hey, come join me in the family of God. Come, come know him as friend. Come know him as savior. Come know him as Messiah. And he invites them to place their trust in him. Verses 37 and 38. It says, now when they heard this, I'm summar- this summarizes the entire sermon uh, beforehand that Peter had preached to them, when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so there comes, to the, there, there comes this moment of application, and just, just so that you guys know, it's the reason why at the end of every sermon, we have application. Because God's word is meant to be Monday morning relevant for all of us. It should apply to us, move us to think differently, to feel differently, to 
act differently. It leads to a change in our lives, a change from whatever we were trusting in to now trusting in God every day, every week. That's why we always have application. And that's the same thing that is going on here. They're going, what shall we do? Now, I'm going to go through and break this down because this is oftentimes a very confused passage. And just like Peter stood up to try to clarify the, the confusion that was amongst the crowd, uh, I want to provide some clarity for us for a verse that is oftentimes misinterpreted. And interpretation is key to understanding what Peter is telling of this crowd to do. Because if you get the interpretation wrong, then the implications and the application will be wrong. And so you got to get the right interpretation to get the right implications and right application. So we're going to go through this uh, very methodically to break this down and pull this apart so that you understand what Peter is calling them to do. So first, those in the crowd, uh, what what Peter's doing, they were uh, convicted of their sin of not accepting Jesus. Those in the crowd were convicted of their sin of not accepting Jesus. I love, if there's one phrase that I love in this whole passage, it's this phrase where it says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. What a great phrase. And I know that when you hear that phrase, depending upon the generation that you're in, as some of you think Shrek and donkey, you know, you cut me deep, Shrek, cut me deep. And some of you think Bon Jovi, you know, shot through the heart. Um, and I, I, I go the Bon Jovi route um, because we have given love a bad name. You know? I mean, okay, all right, yeah. There we go. Because when we reject Jesus and his unconditional sacrificial love for us, then we give his love a bad name. We, we are turning away from, from him, this crazy divine love that, that we can experience nowhere else beyond Christ and his body. And they were cut to the heart. A, a, a very colloquial way to talk about it in the way we uh, understand it and uh, a more common term would just be they were convicted. They felt conviction for their sin. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. Again, I keep going back to what we've talked about before, but remember John chapter 16, verse eight, that before one of the roles specifically before we come to know Christ is the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so the the Holy Spirit is convicting them of their sin. And when they're convicted of their sin, they they want to do something about it. They, 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 they want to make it right. They want to, to reconcile. They realize they are wrong. Now, what, what can we do? That's, that's why they ask the question, what shall we do? And then Peter answers that question. You see, those in the crowd needed to change their mind and believe in Jesus. They needed to change their mind and believe in Jesus. Now, Admittedly, this Acts 2.38 is a verse that can be confusing 
and has, again, led to a lot of misinterpretation and therefore uh, misapplication. Folks have misapplied it. And uh, sincere folks, no no doubt. But I want to clarify what that says. So let's look back at it. Look look at it, because I just want to read it again before we break it down. So it says, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Now, the predominant imperative there is repent. What he's telling them to do is repent. Now, repent just means, biblically speaking, it's, it's almost always used in a salvific context, and it just means to change your mind. It means to, to go the other direction. You are going in this direction. You've, many of you have seen, we've, we've talked about this many times before. I'm going in one direction and I'm repenting. I'm going to turn around and I'm going to go the other direction. I was believing this way. Now I'm going to believe this way. It's a 180 degree shift. And what he's telling them to do is to change their mind about who Jesus is. Why? Because they had just crucified him. They had just crucified him. Now he's asking them to embrace them. That is a complete 180 shift. You didn't believe that he was the Messiah, so you crucified him. In fact, you were probably part of the crowd that was calling for Barabbas instead of Jesus. And he says, now go the other way. Embrace him. Accept no one else but him. He is the Messiah. He is your Savior. Believe in him. That's the change of mind that he is calling them to hear. But the wrong interpretation, what some people have have interpreted this verse to mean, is that you must be baptized, physically baptized, in order to receive the Holy Spirit and be forgiven of your sins. And that is an incorrect interpretation of this passage. And I'll give you three reasons why, okay? First, that's that's incorrect because you only have to believe in Jesus to receive the Holy Spirit. Again, we've talked about that the past few weeks. Go back and look at that. But it's an incorrect interpretation for, for three reasons. First, if you have to be baptized for your sins or physically baptized to receive the Holy Spirit, then that is contradictory to everything else we know about the New Testament. It it doesn't jive. There's no place else in the New Testament where, where that is affirmed. In fact, Jesus talking to Nicodemus in John chapter three, verse 16, what does he tell Nicodemus to do? To believe in him. All, all who believe, shall be saved. Now, he doesn't say all who believe and go to the creek and get baptized will be saved and be forgiven of their sins. No, it's just believe. Repent. Change your mind. Stop trusting in whatever you were trusting in and turn to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So first is it contradicts the entire New Testament. The second is the grammar of the, the Greek sentence. Something that there's, these next two are not so obvious in the English text, which is why I understand why people misinterpret this verse. Um, the, the repent, that imperative, 
that verb. That is plural. It's in, the, it's in the plural form. So is for the forgiveness of sins. But baptized is not. Okay? Baptized is not. So what is being tied together is repent for the forgiveness of your sins. And it makes the be baptized parenthetical. It's set apart. So repentance, turning to Christ, is equated with the forgiveness of your sins, which does that jive with the New Testament? Yes. Okay. I hope so, guys. Come on here. Yes, that, that jives with the New Testament. Remember? I mean, it can't, it can't be, baptism cannot be essential for salvation because wouldn't that be a work? And Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us that we're not saved based on works. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So it can't be based on something I do because even let's say that I trust in Christ, I repent, I place my trust in him, and then I was going to get baptized the next week and I died tragically in a car accident. What does that mean? I'm not saved by works. I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So grammar is the second one. The, the third one is this specific preposition, ice or ace, which means for. And you can see that, you can see that for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, that preposition can mean one of three things. It can mean for the purpose of, it can mean with the result of, or it can mean in reference to. That's, those are three things that it can mean. Now, again, based on all the New Testament that we know, it cannot mean for the purpose of. It cannot mean with the result of. It has to mean in reference to. Because baptism is a symbol of us coming, dying with Christ and coming alive and being resurrected to walk in new life with him. Now, certainly the water is symbolic too, that we are cleansed of our sins when we died with Christ and are raised again, never to be held against us. And so what he is calling them to do is to change their minds and believe in Jesus then, after they changed their minds about him, then those in the crowd could then be baptized to signify their allegiance to Jesus. Belief comes before baptism. We at Christ Chapel believe in believer's baptism. That you make a choice to follow Jesus, to accept him as, the forg- as your savior and for the forgiveness of your sins. Once you make that decision, then you are baptized, just like here in the New Testament. And another uh, thing that is oftentimes misinterpreted here is uh, some folks have said, well, I'm only supposed to be baptized in the name of Jesus, because that's what it says here in verse 38, and not in the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. So here, what he's talking about is in the authority of, or with the authority, by, by authorization of Jesus, because we can only come to know Christ, or we can only come to a right relationship with God through Christ, by his authority, because John 14, 6, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So in the authority of Jesus, we are baptized, which baptism is a symbol of identification. We're identified with God, 
And we are identified not just with Jesus, we're identified with the triune God, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, which follows exactly what Jesus told the disciples in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, with the Great Commission, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that's why we baptize in, when we say it here, and we follow that ordinance, in the triune nature of God, because we're identifying with all of God, not just the Son of God, but it is by the authority the author, that Jesus' payment authorizes us to come into a right relationship with God. And that's what those in the crowd could do. They could then, after they repent and believe, could then go and be baptized. That's when they would receive, or when they believed is when they would receive the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he was pointing them to is first faith in Christ. When they place their faith in Christ, then they would experience the power of the Holy Spirit in them, and that is no different for us today. You see, God's power can be passed on to you when you believe in Jesus. God's power can be passed on to you when you believe in Jesus. Even if you look at verse 39, it says, for this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, and he's calling you, he came for you. And so three very quick applications for us today. First, change your attitude about your sin. First, change your attitude about your sin. Um, You cannot be flippant about your sin. You cannot think that your sin is compartmentalized and not affecting anybody else. And you say, this is just mine. Like nobody, nobody needs to know, nobody's affected, nobody cares. Yes, you are affected whether you know it or not or are willing to admit it and God cares. Your sin is offensive to God and it's destructive to you and those around you. And you've got to change your attitude about your sin that needs to be forgiven. I, I Cody McQueen, I know that I have the right attitude about my sin when I'm unwilling to live with it. When I am cut to the heart and I say, what shall I do? That's what happened here. Are you cut to the heart, understanding the the weight of your sin and saying, God, what should I do? He says, turn to me. Turn to me. Confess your sins. And he is faithful and just to not only forgive you of your sins, but cleanse you from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. Second, change your mind about Jesus. Change your mind about Jesus. That's what he was asking them to do. And maybe you need to change your mind about Jesus for the first time or the thousandth time. For the first time to accept him as your savior so that you can have a right relationship with God or for the thousandth time. And the reason why I say that is because even after we believe in Jesus, sometimes we get the wrong perception of him. And we think, he doesn't want a relationship with me. He's just... He's going to beat me up. He's mad at me. He won't forgive me. I've, I've gone to him too many times. He's run out of grace for me. No, it's not true. His grace never runs out on you, and you can always turn back to him. So we have to constantly be changing our mind about who he is, renewing our minds by what Scripture tells us who Jesus is. And then finally, Change your involvement with this world. Change your involvement with this world. 
the New Testament knew nothing about undercover Christians. Whenever people came to faith in Christ, they identified with him and their identification was public. It was in the river. It was in the, the creek. It was in nearby water where they were immersed, baptized. That was the, the word that was used means to go all the way under to come up because that's that picture of death and resurrection. But it was immediate. It wasn't a, oh, well, I'll believe in you, Jesus, but I just don't want anybody to know it. I mean, do you ever remember those middle school relationships, you know, where, you know, the, the boyfriend or girlfriend, you wanted, you wanted to go, go steady with you or go out with you, and they're like, I'll go out with you, just don't tell anybody, you know? And you're like, I'm not too confident in our relationship, you know? Maybe that didn't happen to you guys. It happened to me a lot. Um, but if you're not willing to say who he is to you, then what does that say about your relationship with him? For some of you, it's time for believer's baptism. You've placed your faith in him, but you've never made it public. We have baptisms, same way that the early church did. And you can find information about that on the back of your sermon notes, regardless of the venue that you're in. Um, Please go look into that. We're doing baptisms on Easter weekend. Would love for you to be baptized on there to proclaim your allegiance to him. You see, don't pass on this power that he wants to pass on to you. It's available to you to change your life and those around you. Let me pray for us. Uh, God, thank you for uh, your word. And Lord, I thank you that you never change, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, thank you that you still call us to yourselves and you still empower us with the same Holy Spirit that can be a witness for you. And Lord, I pray right now specifically for those folks that uh, have not believed in you yet. Lord God, may they place their faith in you for the very first time. And for those that have placed their faith in you, but their faith has been far more private, Lord God, would you give them the courage, the boldness to make it public and to say, now's the time to take the stand and declare my love for my Savior the one who saved my life. Lord God, meet with us now. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.